You're listening to The Semi-Filled Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. This is big time, baby. All right, all right. Mickey's a mouse, Donald's a duck, Pluto's a dog. What's goofy? If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. Goofy's a dog. He's definitely a dog. I knew the $64,000 question was fixed. There's no way anybody could know that much about opera. He can't be a dog. He wears a hat and drives a car. Wagon Train's a really cool show, but did you ever notice that they never get anywhere? Just keep wagon training. God, that's weird. What the hell is Goofy? Hello again. Welcome to episode 14 of The Semi-Filled Writer. I am so glad you're here. I have Eric here. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, what's up? We're going to get right into it with a film review, and it's the 1986 classic Stand By Me. Now, I won't go into all the details, but I meant to do this review about six weeks ago, and then I kept thinking about the novella that this was all based off of, and I thought it'd be a great idea that I should just give myself more work and read the story so that I could have it as part of the review. So that's what I did. I went and I got the book from my local bookstore. And uh, later on, we'll talk more into detail about it. But you read it as well. I it's did. a very easy read. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see if this all pays off. Now, full disclosure, the first time that I ever watched this film, it, I know it came up on TV several times and I just kind of overlooked it. But I was 22 years old. And... I remember some bits and pieces like I remember I was in grad school and I think they did a screening with the the writers. I remember who I was sitting next to and I remember really liking this film, but I don't even remember the q and I don't remember anything that was said afterwards, but I just remember liking it. It was such a fun story and I really cared for those kids. Yeah, I the first time I watched it, I remember... Um... I was with my sister. We were staying overnight at my grandma's house and we watched it. It came on on TV. And at the time, I was the age that the kids are in the movie, uh, you know, give or take. Uh, And I immediately liked it, too. And then I would catch it on TV a couple times thereafter into the, the 90s and, you know, have watched it multiple times and it, it's it is one of those movies that it kind of stays with you. you you remember a lot of things from it it's a good one so let's see if this holds up let me start off with the uh, summary stand by me is a story about four lifelong friends who compete to embarrass each other wait a minute that's that's the premise to impractical jokers let me start over i'm sorry stand by me is a coming-of-age story narrated by gordy lachance he recalls an unusual adventure he took with his three friends when they were 12 years old. They spent Labor Day weekend traveling into the woods to find the dead body of a boy reported missing. Their trek to find the missing boy includes train tracks, campfire stories, and a run-in with a local gang. Gordy also reflects on the death of his brother at the time and Chris's unfortunate reputation. It's a journey and a friendship that he'll never forget. Stand By Me is based on The Body, a novella written by Stephen King. It was released in 1986, written by Reynold Gideon and Bruce A. Evans, and directed by Rob Reiner. The film stars River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Kiefer Sutherland, and I'm only going to say this once, Will Wheaton. That's a Family Guy reference for you. First off, also known as, let's start off with the four kids that are in this film. So 
Will Wheaton. Shut up, Wesley. <laughs> My name's not Wesley. <laughs> You know, he's, I mean, Wesley Crusher is always going to be my connection that I make for him from Star Trek The Next Generation. He has never lived that down. Uh, he was able to bounce back by being uh, himself. He was playing himself in The Big Bang Theory. He first started out as a, a nemesis to Sheldon Cooper. And then I, I sort of stopped paying attention to the show, but I think he eventually becomes friends with that group of people. So he's been able to make a good career considering what he's been through. Yeah. River Phoenix? I, for me, River Phoenix is Chris Chambers from, from Stand By Me. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, he lived a very short life, and it's one of those what-ifs because he could have done some magical yeah, stuff. Yeah, you wonder, you wonder when you kind of play that what-if game, you know, what of those roles of movies that we saw, would he maybe have been some of the characters from and, you know, the whole butterfly effect that would go along with that. But it would have been interesting to see. It's unfortunate because he was really talented. Yeah, having said that, I haven't watched any other movies that he's been in. <laughs> I know there's like my own private Idaho. I have yet to see that. Uh, but one film I do remember seeing him in was he played uh, young Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. And he gets that famous hat yeah. gifted upon him. Mm-hmm. Um, when I looked at his ID- IMDB credits, I didn't realize he made a cameo in a Red Hot Chili Peppers music video. It's the one for Breaking the Girl, one of my favorite songs ever. But if you watch the music video, I I can't even tell you where he is. I just... He's in there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, all I see in that video is just Flea dancing like an idiot, but I can't tell you much else. Uh, For Corey Feldman, who who is he? He's a mix, because for me, he's got to be one of those 80s roles, and there are a lot of them from that era that for someone of my age watching those movies, it has to be... Uh, either it, Teddy from from this one, he would be in the running. Uh, Mouth from Goonies, it would be another good one. Or Edgar Frog in Lost Boys. I'm kind of leaning toward that one. Yeah, he is one half of the two Corys. He was really good friends with Corey Haim. Did a bunch of these movies like The Lost Boys, Dream a Little Dream, License to Drive. So he was a tag team with him. That's what I remember him most as. Mm-hmm. And then Jerry O'Connell. So Jerry O'Connell, and this one's kind of funny for me because if I, I kind of connect him as Quinn from Sliders, the show Sliders from the 90s. And with, I watched that show a little bit. I didn't watch the full run of it, but I, I did watch episodes when it, when it came out and was kind of into the, the show. But then I didn't even make the connection that he was Vern and stand by me until I saw him on some late night talk show. He was being interviewed and they referred to him as the fat kid from stand by me. And I'm like, wow, that is him. Okay. Uh, and it was just one of those moments where you're like struck, like, wow. And, and I'm not the only person who ever had that reaction. I know. So it's, it's funny. I went on Wikipedia and nowhere does it mention that there was this universal reaction to what you just said, where, we all remember the fat kid by Stand By Me, and then we see him as an adult, and he's very handsome and in shape, and it's like, what happened? And he was an inspiration to all fat kids that maybe things will get better, we'll get in shape, we'll look good, and we'll marry a supermodel. I mean, really, like that's the biggest thing about his life, is that he made that transformation, and we all made a big deal out of it. It's... Another one I like for him, and it's not his also known as by any means, but a fun appearance that he did relatively recently. He showed up a couple of times on Drunk History, the show Drunk History. Uh, He did Thomas Jefferson, among some other things here and there. Rasputin, I think, is another one he did. 
So oh yeah, those are it's kind of funny when when people you recognize show up in that show. So, all right, we got a bonus one. Uh, Keith or Sutherland is also in this film, and what is he known as mainly? I think probably for most people they would say Jack Bauer from from Twenty Four, just because that show was huge for a while. I actually never watched it, so that's definitely not my connection. Uh, again, it's it's got to be something from the eighties, and and so Ace from Stand by Me would be in the running, and then David from Lost Boys, and just like with Feldman, I think I'm gonna lean that direction. That's one that I. I guess it's because he has a bigger role in that. Like he's in the movie so much more. And so uh, that's probably who I would remember him as. He's had a string of films and TV shows he's done over the years. If you think of something current that he's done or within the last five, 10 years, I, for some reason, think of Metal Gear Solid five. This was kind of a big deal. He voiced big boss. And usually in all those Metal Gear Solid games, whether it's big boss or snake, it was David Hayter and Hideo Kojima decided, I want to take a different direction in this one. And so, I don't know if he fired Hater, but he wanted to put someone some more uh, acting chops behind him. So he asked Keith Sutherland to do it. And I can only imagine what that conversation was like where he got approached to be in this video game. But it was a good one. I enjoyed that game. It's They're all convoluted in some way, but they're still <laughs> fun to play. Let's go on to heroes and villains. And let me say, by the way... I, f- I forget this every time, but it's four kids between the ages of 11 and 15. They're carrying an entire movie all to- all by themselves. It's not like they have an adult with them that they run dialogue off of each other. It's four kids that are doing it. Yeah, and- almost the entirety of the of the film is just the four kids and how they interact with each other. And they're all really good in this mm-hmm. in this movie, too. The, the subtlety they have, some of the timing. You just think of... Uh, it just it just feels like it, it could be a real you know group of kids growing up taking a trip out into the woods and it just works. Let's start off with we're gonna do this in pairs. So Gordy and Chris are definitely our leads in this, and I'll I'll speak on on Chris. He's wise beyond his age. It's just he's a peacekeeper with the group, and then he's also super aware of how people are uh, looking at these kids. He knows where his place is and he knows that he comes from a bad family and that people don't expect much from him and that has an effect on him. But you can see that he has a full understanding as a 12-year-old in the story that this is the life that he has and this is the the card that was dealt to him. It was yeah, very compelling. He, he has a real wisdom and, and insight that's beyond his years. And that is the conflicting thing for him, that he sees this path that everybody expects him to be on, and, and he almost can't see any way of breaking away from that either. And then for Gordy, I mean, he is our main character. He's the one that's narrating the story. What are your feelings on Gordy? Gordy is, he's kind of relatable in a lot of ways. If you If you were ever the person who was maybe a little bit awkward or shy or something like that, because he has those qualities. He's also uh, smart. And so I think as one of the most central characters here, if not the central character, I guess, since it's him reflecting in later life, I, I think that it's a, a good character that you you either relate personally or you know someone who was like that. And he, I believe, is the most proactive of the bunch, because um, you see him in the story. He kind of goes along with this group, decides to go and find Ray Brower, who's this missing boy. And at the time, he's just really sad. He's grieving over the loss of his big brother. 
his parents treat him like he doesn't exist or they don't approve of who he hangs around with. He's getting picked on by Ace. So he's got all these things where he's not in control, but then he gains all this confidence near the end and he's the one that eventually sticks the gun up and threatens Ace to get out of their way. And so he goes through a big transformation throughout this story. Now, you have the other two friends, which is uh, Vern and Teddy. And I feel with these two, they don't go through any sort of growth in this, but they add a, a great dynamic. They're very colorful in the, the behavior and the, the gestures that they have. So you've got Vern, who's the dumbest of the bunch, and they like to pick on him, but uh, he's still part of the group. It's not like they're abusing him or harassing him to the point where he wants to do something bad, but... Then you got Teddy, who's crazy. He is a psycho. He's ang- he's got a lot of anger issues, and you know, having to reconcile the way that he had been treated by his dad, where he's really conflicted and in, in his feelings there. And yeah, the two the two of those characters just help as support to round out the group, and and it does bring in some extra both comedy and emotion. Now we have Ace and the gang. These are I'm gonna argue in it. They're not the main antagonists, but they are definitely antagonists as they uh, eventually encounter the kids. And so I feel with the gang, if they were just by themselves and you kind of see it with a couple of them, they don't really amount to much. They might be intimidating, but they, they can't do any harm. They're really not threatening. It's only whenever they have a leader like Ace barking orders at them, and if they're under his wing, then they feel like they're menacing and, and they're just as bad. But they can't do it without Ace, so... I agree with you that that the majority of the gang, like as delinquent as they might be, or you know, not great kids, that it that it does take that that leader to really spur them into action as being the full on troublemakers that they that they really are. And I I think that the film does a really good job of selling Ace as being that charismatic delinquent leader. I, I think it really sets him up strongly in that way. The one thing I want to bring up. I just said a minute ago that Ace and Gang are not the main antagonist. I feel like the biggest villains of all in this story are the parents and Mrs. Simons, the the teacher that Chris brings up. I think they're the worst of it because what's funny is that you only see Gordy's parents, but you don't see anyone else's parents, but it's clear they have this heavy influence on those kids and they shape them into who they are. And it's kind of sad how they uh, didn't raise them as well as it could be. I, I agree with you. I think that while obviously there's conflict that, that the group has with Ace and his gang, the adults are pretty terrible. The, the neglectful parents, the abusive parents, the, the teacher that we never actually even see who just confirms to Chris that everything that he suspects about how his life is going to go is how his life is going to go. And so really that that all a lot of the conflict in the, in the characters that when they interact with each other, it, it all is rooted in their interactions with these other adults who have been in their lives. So what happened to you, man? Let's talk about a couple of the writers that were part of this film and what's happened to them. So it's Reynold Gideon and Bruce A. Evans. They are a writing team. They have done other projects together. They've worked on films such as Starman, Made in Heaven, Cutthroat Island, Jungle to Jungle, you might be familiar with those, I don't know. But for a 15-year period, they did not have a writing credit to their name. So from 1992 until 2007, and that's whenever they got a film called Mr. Brooks Made that starred Kevin Costner as this secret serial killer. Um, The reason why they didn't have uh, any other 
credits for that time, and this is what I read, they did have definitely plenty of story ideas. It's that the problem was that they were very ambitious. They required a high budget and they couldn't find a production company that was willing to front all this money to just put a movie together and hope that it gets some commercial success. But yeah, they got Mr. Brooks released and there was a plan to do a trilogy. They didn't even have the whole story written out, but they had ideas of what they wanted to do for future sequels. But the rights were sold to multiple investors and of course you can't get everybody in a room to agree on something. So it just kind of died right there. I was looking to see if they had anything else going on. It seems like they're going to do a reboot of the first film that they ever did together, which was Starman. The premise to that is very strange. It's about this woman, her dead husband comes back to life, but it's an alien that is taken on this vessel or something. I don't know. It could have been a great film, but they're rebooting it. It sounds like they're rebooting it and it's in development now. So it must be good if they want to do that again and not an original idea, but... What do I know? Yeah, I'm not we'll a working writer. So good luck to them. Yeah, And you know, when, when I think you, I like this category when you do your, so what happened to you, man, because you bring up stuff that I don't think a lot of times that you even consider because some of the, some of the people that were involved with something, you don't always necessarily. And so to find out what they're doing, but the, with, for this particular movie, it's like, what if man? And we already touched on that. It's easy to do this in certain films. Cause you remember that actor, they were very popular and then you don't hear much from them. But whenever you go into some of these others, you have to find somebody that has not been as successful or hasn't done much for reasons that are, are their control or they're not their control. Yeah. But yeah. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> Let's go with the soundtrack now. Let me give you the names of some of the songs that were in this. Um, they're all from that time, 1959, 1960s. Let the Good Times Roll, Lollipop, Yakety Yak, Great Balls of Fire. Those are just some of the songs. And I feel like when you do period pieces and it's anything that's connected to the 60s or 70s, you could just do the whole soundtrack of songs that came at the time and it works. I don't know if like years from now we're doing a film that takes place in 1990, if you could do the same sort of thing, I guess, but I don't know if it would have the same effect. Yeah, I don't know if it would if it would quite connect you to the era in exactly the same way. Uh, I do have to say, though, most of the songs are just horrible songs. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like a lot of the songs that are in this movie. I always cringe when it comes to the lollipop. Yeah, I, I, that's it's an like, awful yeah. song, yeah. But we'll get more into <laughs> best worst scenes in a minute. Um, okay, the obvious song, the reason we all came here today, Stand By Me by Ben E. King. Not one of the terrible songs. It's actually a great song. It, it, it was a hit when it first came out. It got a renewed interest when this movie came out. And then... I'm going to sound basic as I as I tell this story. I was very inspired by the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Like, I'm not big on the royals and following their every move. I didn't do a view party of the wedding, but I saw highlights of some of the things that happened in the ceremony. And they had the Kingdom Choir that performed a gospel version of Stand By Me. And it's a very wonderful performance. It's very beautiful. And the message, the lyrics come out even more when you hear it. So I thought I would like to play Stand By Me at our wedding. And then the question was, which version do you go with? Because there are over 400 covers of this song. It's not the record, but there are 400 different people that have done their own recording of Stand By Me. And so the one that I ultimately picked out was from Florence and the Machine. 
And they wrote that song or they performed that song specifically for the video game Final Fantasy XV, which is also about four young friends going on an adventure. I don't know. But <laughs> Florence can wail and um, we you didn't pay attention, but it was in the pre-ceremony music. I don't music know about pay attention. I just didn't catch it when it played. Yeah. It meant more to me than, than <laughs> you. That's what I'm getting at. But it's a beautiful song. All right. Best scene and worst scene. Uh, let's start with the best scene. I have a couple of choices. Uh, one of them is the silly choice, which is the Barfarama when Gordy's telling his story about uh, Lardass Hogan, who is getting revenge on everybody. And then just at the end of that, he throws up all over someone who then throws up and then another one throws up and everybody's throwing up. And, you know, you think I think about it the first time I watched it as a kid and it's like this very juvenile enjoyment of it because it's, you know, gross but funny. And then on on rewatches and thinking of it from a different perspective, it's actually a really entertaining revenge story. And so it's just satisfying that he accomplishes his vision to such an extremity. And it's really goofy the way that everything is done. You know, you can tell that the vomit is fake and, you know, it's all over the top, but it just fits because it's coming from the imagination of this kid and uh, who's who eventually becomes this great storyteller. And so this is kind of one of the things that's at the beginning of that. But I do enjoy that scene. If you want me to throw out another one right now, uh, the one that's more serious that, that I really enjoy is um, right close to the end when when it's just Gordy and Chris and they're saying their farewells at the, the end of the trip. I, I feel like it's just a really emotional. I think both actors did a good job of like conveying this sort of, I don't know, sense of loss of, you know, youth and innocence and things are never going to be the same. And the culmination of that, that journey and the experience that they, that they shared together. And uh, it's just, a, to me, you know, I'll see you around, not if I see you first. And it's just it's just a really strong emotional scene, I think. I have also two selections for best scene, and they both involve crying. So the first scene is when Chris is talking about stealing the milk money, but then uh, he admit, wants to give it back and goes to a teacher, someone that he feels he could confide in, and they take advantage of the situation and don't return the milk money and just lets him get a three-day vacation as he says but it was so disappointing and heartbreaking to have him tell the story and realize that someone that he should have trusted a figure like a teacher that should be an advocate for you fails him as well and that was really sad to to see that play out and then the other scene is uh once they find ray brower gordy finally has this catharsis. He has this moment where he didn't cry at the funeral. He admits he didn't cry, but it all comes together. He's faced with this mortality and he is both very, very sad that his older brother died and it wasn't fair that he should have died because he had so much potential for the future. Also, what's left behind are these parents. They will care less about Gordy and will not love him as much as they love Denny. And so that's just really sad to have him realize that and to to grieve yeah very powerful moment mm -hmm. okay war scene you brought up the story of davy lardass hogan as your best scene for me that's my worst scene <laughs> like i said i watched i see these clips briefly when i was a kid and i didn't i didn't understand the context of this story at all but the vomit always came out 
and I was a sentimental vomiter, and it was very uncomfortable and d difficult to watch something like that. It's gotten better over the years. I don't have that same reaction, but I also realized the thing that is just disgusting as vomit is an eating contest. Totally with you. Absolutely disgusting. When you see, it doesn't matter what it is. It's pies, it's hot dogs. Uh, to see them try to like shove all this food down their throat. Yeah, it's little relevant since this is 4th of July weekend <laughs> as we're recording this one. And, you know, they just did the stupid hot dog eating contest again. <laughs> of all the events that have gotten canceled due to COVID-19, that's one that just went on as scheduled. Like they took precautions and everything. They They distancing or whatever but still it's just i don't know why people care about it as much as they do it's it's really gross yeah i dare all of you right now just go look at a video of a hot dog eating contest just watch them dip it in a cup of water and then shove down their throats <laughs> and you tell me that's not disgusting it's <laughs> the worst scene for me and it is and it's not because it's i think that it's bad or doesn't fit the the movie is the leeches and, you know, there's only, there's one obvious reason why that scene is a bad scene is just I, I can't even imagine having a leech hanging off your nutsack. <laughs> it's not one that you want would ever want to happen. So, uh, yeah, worst scene. Not even on your worst enemy. No. <laughs> well, maybe them. OK, <laughs> I, I have a runner up. I just remembered this. It's the very final scene. And it's grown-up Gordy. He's known as the writer. Uh, he is finishing his story about that time when he was 12 years old. And then his son and the son's friend come in. And they're waiting for the father to be ready. And he had them waiting for an hour to go wherever they needed to go. And I do get, if you have a writer's bug and you just got to get everything out, this is the life he has. And I think what bothers me is that he spent this whole time talking about how awful his parents are and the way they treated him. And then he has a moment where he's not being the best father by keeping his son waiting for an hour. It always bothered me to see that. And I think you could still have that moment where he's finishing up his writing, but just not have it so that he's keeping these two kids just waiting. Yeah. Just waiting and waiting. I could see it. Yeah. Because like you say, you know, when that inspiration strikes, you, you got to, you don't know when that's going to come back. So you can't just leave it. But yeah, maybe not have him neglecting his kid the way that his parents did. <laughs> Do you want to start with best line? Yeah, I can start if you want. I, I like it's It's kind of a conversation and an exchange that I've got here. There's, there's the moment where, you know, when the four are walking along the tracks and they separate every once in a while. And so there's one of the moments where where Gordy and Chris are, are talking to each other and, and Gordy asks Chris, do you think I'm weird? And Chris says, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes on and you, Gordy says, no man, seriously, am I weird? And, and Chris says, yeah, but so what? Everybody's weird. And, and I've always liked that. Uh, I frequently will say that I think that you're weird and not mean it in any way as an insult. It's, I, I, I think of myself as being weird. I think that, you know, those quirks, those idiosyncrasies are things that are, you know, to be thought of in, in good terms a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the spirit of this quote, obviously, that that Chris is like, yeah, so what? Who cares? You're weird. And it's fine. I couldn't find like one particular line, but I think it's a whole exchange and it just follows up right after what you brought up. And it's whenever they're talking about junior high Gordy doesn't want to take the college classes. He wants to stay with his friends. And Chris says, no, it's your friends that bring you down. 
again, it's Chris being wise. He understands the potential that Gordy has and is thinking about stuff like the future. Who thinks about the future when you're 12 years old? Um, and then the other part of it, too, is where he wants Gordy to be a writer. He knows that that is also part of the future. And he says, it's like God gave you something, man. All the stories you can make up. And he said, this is what we got for you, kid. Try not to lose it. And so, again, it's just him trying to push Gordy to reach his potential, looking out for him. And I thought that was just a wonderful thing for a friend to do for another. Yeah, I, I think it's... it. Not not entirely related, but sort of, because I think it's in the same exchange where at some point Gordy says bullshit to Chris and Chris says bull true. And I always <laughs> thought that that's just a funny like line. Mm-hmm. It just sounds so ridiculous, but it makes me laugh. For the worst line, I gotta say there weren't any that were like particularly bad or out of place. Um, but what I do have for my worst line is what Vern says when they're in the camp, just shoot the breeze and and he says, if I could only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pez. Cherry flavored Pez. <laughs> no question about it. How do you live off Pez? How do you live off candy? It's not a food. That just never made sense to me. Yeah, I mean, and obviously in the mind of a kid, you're, you're not necessarily thinking of what's going to sustain your life. <laughs> but yeah, that is, that's a funny one, actually. I, it makes me laugh, too. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any uh, Yeah, not again, not really. I don't, I, there was nothing that that it just seems so bad or like you said i i do have just a weird connection for some reason to me that we brought up also known as and and Kiefer sutherland is it, to me he's always the villain from lost boys or he's the villain from stand by me and and in stand by me the line that he says that that i always remember is, is toward the end and it actually comes straight out of the novella when he's finally going to back down after having a gun pointed at him and and he's telling them he's not going to forget and he says this is big time baby <laughs> and i i just think of that one as it's just such an appropriate Kiefer Sutherland 80s movie villain line it's kind of corny but also Mm -hmm. I guess fits and again since it came straight out of the novella it's not like he ad-libbed it or anything but yeah that's all I got true facts about stand by me I've got several things that I found out here and I don't know what order I want to go in first off we talked about the vomit from the Davy Hogan story (laughs) In case you wanted to know what that was made of, it's cottage cheese and blueberry mix. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, you got four kids working together on a film. Hijinks are to ensue. So the four kids here, they were in a hotel and just causing all sorts of recklessness. They apparently were trying to destroy the hotel. They were throwing furniture in a pool. There was a tale that River Phoenix lost his virginity as he was filming this. He was meeting a family friend. Remember, he was 15 at the time. Think of it as you will. (laughs) I don't know. And then also there was a story about how they all went to a renaissance fair in the area. Kiefer Sutherland bought some cookies, didn't know that they were laced with marijuana, and Jerry O'Connor had a very bad trip on it. (laughs) That's a funny story too, yeah. Yeah. A couple of others I have. Uh, Stand By Me as the title... They couldn't use the body as the title for this because it was either going to be seen as a horror film or as an erotic movie. Yeah, they didn't think that it would fit. It wouldn't be marketable. And so they actually had a hard time finding a title for this. And then they decided, well, let's go with Stand By Me, I guess, named after the song. And it was one of the ones that they didn't dislike. So they just stuck with it. Yeah. 
when I when I try to think of a link for that, and we talked about reading the the novella before rewatching this time, and in the scene where they're facing down Ace and his gang with the gun, and there's a line where where Chris after Vern and Teddy run away, uh, where Chris says, "Stick with me, Gordy," and and that's when I was reading the the novella that jumped out at me like oh well that's you know the name of the movie i'm uh, it's actually kind of surprised to not find out that it kind of came from that in some way yeah uh rob reiner and a few of his buddies created a production company after making stand by me it's called castle rock entertainment and the story here is set in castle rock if you ever go to pdx airport that's the portland international airport in oregon Something that they're very proud of are the uh, films that they've been able to shoot on location in Oregon. So there's this walkway that connects a terminal to either the parking garage or the car rentals. And it's got tons of movie posters and they're all major films that have been shot in Oregon. And so you'll see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Goonies, which we mentioned earlier, Stand By Me. And so it's a really cool display where you see like films that you're familiar with and you get shot in Oregon and it kind of makes you want to maybe travel to those places and see what's over there. Yeah. Some of the places have done one of the things that I found with the the town. I forget what, the, what was the name of the town that was the stand in oh, for uh, Brownsville, Oregon. Yeah. So in, in Brownsville, they encourage tourism or to try to encourage tourism. One of the things that they did, there's a scene at the end when Vern leaves at the very end of the movie where he finds a penny in the street, picks it up a penny and then, and then he's gone. And so I guess they, put a penny like into the street, like fixed it onto the street at that exact spot. So the tourists can go up and see Vern's penny. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. They also do have a stand by me day yeah. every year. I forget it's somewhere in July, but they do celebrate that film. It's kind of a big deal over there. Uh, one other thing I wanted to share. There's an oral history that some of the cast and crew members from Stand By Me uh, participated in 30 years after the release of the film. And so Will Wheaton was saying that when he was auditioning, he had like an acting coach or an agent or somebody. And Will didn't know how to cry on cue or how to cry in a scene. And the coach was saying, well, no, it doesn't matter. They'll just throw onions or something and they'll force you to cry that way. So you have to worry about it. And so Will admitted at the audition that he was uncomfortable crying in a scene. And when he was done with the audition, one of the screenwriters actually came up to him and they said, hey, can you go back and just tell him that you joked about not crying? Because you might lose this job if if you say you can't cry. And so he did. He went back and he's like, I, I really regret listening to that that acting coach. He gave me some very terrible advice and could have lost everything that came after that. Could've yeah, could have ruined his career. <laughs> Could have lost Wesley Crusher and Big Bang Theory and all of that because he couldn't cry. Did you have anything? Yeah, I got I got a couple other things that I came across. One thing that that's interesting is at the time Stephen King considered it the best adaptation of any of his work. I think he still holds it up there. I don't know if he thinks it's the best one, but um, it's interesting to know that the original writer of the story really liked the film adaptation because it doesn't always work that way, uh, and even with some other Stephen King. Oh yeah, <laughs> material. And then another one that I saw was that originally River Phoenix was going for the character of Gordy. And I'm trying to imagine the movie with River Phoenix as Gordy, and I just can't because he's so much Chris Chambers that 
I, I can't see how that would have even made sense. And then it was kind of funny to think, well, if he was Gordy, who's Chris? And it's just an interesting one. And then uh, I think we were talking about this one before where we talked about how the novella takes place in Maine and the movie is set in Oregon. And the claim someone said is that uh, they, that uh, how, how was it again that... Oh, so one of the writers got confused and assumed this whole story took place in Oregon because in the book they mentioned Portland. There is a Portland, Maine, but he associated it with Portland, yeah, Oregon, yeah. and then just thought, well, okay, this whole thing is in Oregon. Yeah, and my thought with that one when I when I come across that is like, did that person who was responsible for the setting not even read the novella? Because if reading in reading the novella, there are many clear mentions that it's Maine, everything from the rail line. <laughs> having to do with Maine and uh you know all the regional references it's not just Portland and so I guess if you just see Portland and then okay fine you could be confused he must also not be a Stephen King fan because most of his stories take place in Maine where also, he's from also a good point <laughs> it is funny if that's actually the case but it, it's unconfirmed I don't know yeah suspend your disbelief we're gonna do something a little bit different today I brought up the book let me tell you more about this book. It's called Different Seasons, and it's a collection of four short stories that Stephen King has written over the years. And one of them is The Body, which is... Uh... Turned into Stand By Me. Yes, thank you. You also have Apt Pupil, that was also made into a feature film. Uh, the Breathing Method, which is currently in production to be turned into a film. And then the other story, I don't know, you might have heard of it. It's uh, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. What's that? I don't know. One of the greatest <laughs> movies ever. So what I'm trying to say is there's these four novellas in here and they've come up with some of the best stories that were made into feature films. And so, again, it was easy read. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading some of the other stories in there. Um, but we're going to compare and contrast what's in the novella here in the body and what was actually in the film. Another thing I wanted to bring up, the reason why he did this collection called Different Seasons, at first Stephen King, his editor at the time, uh, wanted him to come up with something that was not horror. He was afraid that if he wrote another horror story after the success of Carrie, his first movie, his first novel, that he would just get pigeonholed as a horror writer. Yeah, and it was considered to be tough to be successful as just a horror writer. So that was the, the concern, I guess. And then he had these short stories that he was writing, just kind of coming off of writing a major novel. And the problem was that it was at a certain word count, anywhere from between 20 and 30,000. And that would be a novella. And those were difficult to just publish on their own. Later on, he talked to a new editor he had. And at that time, he was very successful, wildly successful as a horror novelist. And the editor wanted him to have another horror story in line like what's your what what do you got lined up now and Stephen King convinced him that he had these four dramatic short stories and put them together and call it different seasons and I want to release that and so he finally convinced him to to release it but then he said oh I also have a move uh, a story about a talking car <laughs> I love it let's do it <laughs> was it a talking car or just a a sentient car haunted car yeah. somehow yeah I don't, I don't remember exactly <laughs> but yeah so they were worried that he would get typecast as a horror writer and now he's you know maybe the best known horror writer of all time and then it's oh he also wrote some other stuff too <laughs> yeah. all right let's let's get into this 
Well, you know, in the in the spirit of keeping it somewhat related to suspend your disbelief, um, one kind of thought that I always had watching the movie was, well, they just faced down Ace and his gang with a gun and got them to back off. And of course, you know, Ace tells them that we're not going to forget this and this is big time baby and all of that. And the movie ends and we don't really know that anything happened. And I always wondered, because those guys weren't going to just let that go. No. You know, especially Ace, you know, and uh, the others at his lead, I'm sure, would had to have done something. And so now, having read the, the novella, you actually find out in the novella, they actually do take some beatings. Uh, particularly Chris and Gordy get it really bad, like broken noses, bruised up faces, broken arms, and... Uh, taking a nasty nut shot <laughs> and having them swell up and and yeah so there's some some ugly stuff that that happens afterward and so I had always wondered and so it was interesting to finally read it and see oh they did have that and and I guess it kind of makes sense that the movie doesn't bring that up because at that point of the of the film it's it's more about like you know, them realizing things had changed, that the world was going to, that was, it was a little bit different, that you're not a kid the same way that you used to be. Uh, and then you have the reflection of the writer as Gordy as an adult looking back on everything. So that kind of fits. But yeah, that's something I always had wondered. And, and there is that difference. And then another one that is actually in both, it's the same. I think it's the same number, at least. Uh, we talked about the Barfarama, the Lardass Hogan scene. And when he's being described, Gordy says that he's, you know, really big for a kid and says that he's 180. Well, 180 would be pretty big for a kid, but when you see him on the screen, that kid weighed had to weigh way more than 180 pounds. That kid had to be pushing 300 pounds, I would think. That actor, by the way, that was only one of two films that he ever done in his life. I should have caught his name earlier. I didn't write it down, but that's all that he's ever done. So, he's Davy Hogan for life. <laughs> Lord, ass. how awesome would that be? Oh, <laughs> all right, what other contrasts you got? I have a few. Okay, we were just talking about the confrontation with Ace and his gang. Two things real quick. It's actually Chris that has the gun and is pointing mm. it at Ace yeah. in the novella. Yeah. And then here in the film, it's Gordy that does it. Second thing, too, whenever uh, Ace retaliates and beats up all the kids, they don't rat him out. They don't say Ace did it. They just It's an unspoken thing where they just accept the beating for what happened and... They're not going to throw anybody under the bus. It's I'm still crazy. not entirely sure why that's considered as much of a virtue as it is. <laughs> I don't know. That I understand to a certain extent, keep your mouth shut. You don't say anything. But but yeah, when, when you take that kind of battery, it's just crazy. Yeah. Here are the few things that I found that are different. First of all, Castle Rock, Oregon in the film, in the novella, Castle Rock, Maine. Uh, there are two short stories that are published within the novella that were written by Gordy, or as he's known as Gordon Lachance. One of them is the story of Davy Lardas Hogan. The other one is just a short story about this blue-collared guy, and it's a lot about him being with this girl. It gets kind of erotic and inappropriate. But the bigger thing is that his brother, I believe, also dies in that short story, and he's got a very um, violent relationship with his father and just wants to get out of it. So yeah, it's, it's kind of semi-autobiographical and... Yeah, it's supposed to have been the first published story that he ever did, and he admits it's a bad story, it's not great, but it is an extension of himself, and it's why he wanted to write it. But you can't put that in the film because it just doesn't fit. The leech scene, there's only one thing that's... Well, there's a couple things that, that are different with it. In the film, 
it's just supposed to be an obstacle. It's this boggy pond thing. It's supposed to be disgusting, but they're trying to get a shortcut into Back Harlow Road. In the short story, it's actually fresh water and they decide they want to jump in there because it's hot and they want to cool down and clean up and stuff. And then the leeches come in. They're actually totally naked when they go in the pool and they're trying to rip them off. And then there's a moment there where there's one leech left on Gordy and it's on his left testicle. He's too afraid to take it off. And so he gives a look to Chris suggested maybe he help him out and Chris is like no man I'm not helping you with that and so he removes it himself and it bursts open and it's not until half an hour later as they're continuing walking that it finally catches up to Gordy and he passes out so it just plays out a little bit differently yeah. again you can't show four naked boys in a movie <laughs> so they didn't do it like that oh the fate of Vern Teddy Chris and Ace so in the film we never hear about Ace again after that, but he, in the, in the book, he's working class now, he's super fat, and he just goes every day to the local bar and just drinks with his buddies. He is a loser and not somebody that people aren't intimidated by anymore. Now, Vern and Teddy and Chris, they actually all die early. They all die very young. So Vern, in the novella, he dies when I think he's about 18 in an apartment fire uh, Teddy, he's got a drug problem. He's alcohol problem. He gets involved in an accident where he's drinking and driving and he dies along with some of his buddies. And then Chris, the situation plays out the same. He tries to stop a fight in a fast food restaurant, gets stabbed. However, it's assumed in the film that he's like in his thirties. He's much older when it happens. He's 23 in the novella. He's like his second year into grad school. And he dies. Yeah. And so it's just really sad that all these other people had much shorter lives and didn't live on to do something more. And that gets me into the next part of it, because this has to do with the overall theme of the novella. The relationships between Gordy and Denny and Gordy with his friends, they are not as strong, I believe, in the novella as they are in the film. In the novella, Gordy sees Denny kind of like a stranger. He kind of reveres him, but he doesn't see Denny as a, as a best friend or someone that's really looking out for him. But in the film, it's like his best friend, and he's the only one that in the family that cares about what he's doing. He gives him a gift. He is talking about the story that was really good. Like, he is his biggest fan. I feel like the friendships are different, too, where they're a lot stronger in the, the film and I feel like that's more of the theme that you catch is just the the friendship and those relationships yeah the the dynamic is definitely a little bit different uh, in the in the novella in the the connections among the four I mean they're definitely a group of friends that hangs out a lot uh, but the characterizations of of Vern and Teddy are slightly different like Teddy's got way more problematic things going on than he does even in the the movie. And Vern is just always just going to be a dumb waste of life, I guess, is kind of how he's characterized sometimes. Uh, whereas, yeah, it seemed like it was more of a, a, a bond of friendship that it just had a different feel for sure in the in the film. Yeah. And the novella, I think it was more about Gordy's view on mortality. Yeah. Because there's nothing that's prompting him to recall this story. It's not like he reads in the paper that Chris dies and he suddenly is flooded with this memory. It's just in some random moment in his life, he's just thinking back about going to go see Ray Brower and yeah. 
the fate of everybody that he's left behind. Yeah, and there there are actually multiple times in the the novella where where Vern and Teddy are talked about as that they're going to drag someone down, that they're going to keep someone down, that they're not going anywhere ever, and that if you stay around them, that it's gonna it's gonna ruin your life too. That they're going to pull you down with them. If they remade the film today, what would change, or what would you want to change? Don't remake this movie. That would be stupid. Uh, what what I would want is just you know more similar stories because I I do really like the the format of making something that's that coming of age tale that that change from the innocence of youth to understanding that life is going to have a lot more things to to come up whatever whatever it may be and so uh, you know even if it's not similar to this from whatever a person's background is. To, to tell that story for themselves. So, you know, I think about myself growing up in the 90s, what would have been my moment where I made some of these realizations? And so I think it it's just interesting whenever I get to see stories like that. And there are many that, oh, yeah. that have been told and there are many that will continue to be told. And so I think that I, that's going to be a good, an easy thing for me because people already do it. Uh, but yeah, definitely no reason to remake the movie. I thought in the previous times that I've watched Stand By Me, I always thought that they didn't show Ray Brower's face when they finally discover his dead body. I I don't know, but I in the DVD that we were watching, they actually do show it. And I felt like it wasn't necessary. I think it would have been more powerful if you just, you know, you're only showing his foot. You could see his foot or his hand. But then just leave it to your imagination of how mangled and decomposed because he's been sitting out there for days. Like, it, it's it's got to be worse than what it really is. I don't think they should do a remake either. Something I was trying to rack in my brain to see if there was something they could do. Maybe a spinoff. I, I feel like with what we know about Chris and seeing him in, in the film and then knowing his, his end is where he gets stabbed and dies. There's a period in there where he's able to break through and become successful. And I kind of want to see that played out. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but I do. I just want to see something good happen for Chris, and I want to see him try to achieve that by being able to go to school, being able to pass the bar and become a lawyer. I just yeah, I, he's a really a really interesting character, and so you do you do kind of wonder, and there's a lot of of things that could be explored for for his you know all too short life. What actually happened because clearly there was some kind of change because he didn't get dragged down the way that he always thought he was going mm-hmm. to. That's all I got. I got nothing else. Awesome. No, this is fun. It's it's still it still holds up. This movie is like almost twenty five years old. It's no thirty five. <laughs> oh my god. Lost a decade somewhere. Nice. Yeah. But what I'm trying to say is still a good movie. Still ages well. It's it's a favorite of mine. I like it. All right, you know where to reach me, guys. Semifieldwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifieldwriter.com. Instagram, Twitch, at SemiFieldWriter. What's your social media, Eric? Do I have any? No. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to reach him, you can reach me if you have any questions. Um, but yeah, that's all that we have. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Actually, I think it's a personal story that I'll be telling. So it'll just be me. Yeah, you I'll, get a break. I'll ignore that one. All right. <laughs> Thank you again, guys, for tuning in. I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Take care.